1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Are you so busy fulfilling everyone else's expectations that you've lost touch with yourself? Do you find yourself filling up your free hours with mundane tasks, soaking up podcasts to improve yourself, and rushing around, never getting it all done? For many women, it's the same kind of story. We hustle to overachieve at work and at home all in the hopes that we can crush it until we finally feel fulfilled. Well, Vanessa Loder invites you to consider this question. What if the point isn't to crush it in life, but to savor it? In her book, The Soul Solution, this sought after women's leadership expert shares a powerful and practical guide to help women who feel overwhelmed and exhausted recover their true selves and their joy in living. Filled with practical guidance and inspiring personal stories, The Soul Solution is a non-strategic, non-linear, but entirely effective guide to help you reclaim your feminine, intuitive soul power to fulfill your most meaningful and satisfying desires. Vanessa Loder is an international keynote speaker and sought-after expert on women's leadership, mindfulness, stress management, and sustainable success. She's been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, Glamour, and the Huffington Post, among others. She received her MBA from Stanford University, is a certified executive coach, and is trained in neuro-linguistic programming, past life regression, and Vipassana meditation. For more information, please visit her website at vanessaloder.com, and that's V-A-N-E-S-S-A-L-O-D-E-R. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host, and today I am talking with Vanessa Loder about her new book, The Soul Solution. And I'm super excited because um, I was just telling her that the the population that I work with is very much the same. I think, let's see, you describe it as uh, brilliant, overwhelmed women who are looking to quiet the noise and find their superpower so they can finally feel satisfied. So I'm so glad you're here today.
1: No, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: So usually we like to start out by just getting a little background on you and kind of what brought you to write this book.
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to share that. So I joke that I am a recovering perfectionist. I've been an overachiever, you know, my entire life, went to an Ivy League school, graduated top of my class, took a job on Wall Street uh, doing investment banking, thought about joining the Peace Corps, but went into finance instead, which was a little example of like maybe a soul whisper that I ignored. And then I went on to work in private equity doing these billion dollar buyouts again on Wall Street in New York. Came out to California to get my MBA from Stanford. Graduated, thought about doing something entrepreneurial, but chickened out. And at the time I told myself, well, you have some student loans. It'd be more responsible to go back to finance. But in hindsight, it was really a fear of failure that kept me making the safe choice, but not even just a fear of failure. It was deeper than that. It was a fear of not knowing what I would do with my life if I wasn't following this prescribed path of success. And so I got to this point in my career where I was on track to be a partner at this prestigious firm and making plenty of money on the board of a company I loved. like all the things, all the shiny things looked good on my resume. And yet inside, I just had this feeling of like i'm meant for more in life and i would look at the partners and think i don't really want to be a partner at this private or any private equity firm and then i had thoughts like well maybe there's something wrong with me maybe i'm lazy maybe i'm just not motivated enough like i don't i would look at all my classmates from stanford and i would think i don't really want any of their jobs either So that led to a lot of soul searching, honestly. And I got really into mindfulness and meditation. I read a book called Many Lives, Many Masters, which really woke me up to reincarnation, which and past lives, which wasn't something I'd ever thought about. And I got trained in neuro-linguistic programming, which is a way to rewire your neurology, to change how your brain, some of your thoughts and behaviors. So I just started doing all this stuff for myself just to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do in the world. And I ended up changing so much that I decided what I wanted to do was quit my job in finance and dedicate my life to bringing these tools to other people and particularly to women, mostly ambitious driven women who you know have big bold goals and dreams and visions and things they want to achieve with their lives but they want to do it in a more sustainable way that nourishes their well-being that supports their their soul their body and also where their goals could feel maybe more aligned because I know for myself I lost myself and so yeah that's what I've been doing for the last my gosh almost 12 years now and I just wrote a book about it all
0: <laughs> and and honestly readers will be so grateful that you did. So what was this like though, is you, because you went from, you know, this sort of traditional MBA program, then of course, you know, into finance and all of that. What was it like for people in your um community or people you were in relationship with when you all of a sudden start like, like yeah.
1: what yeah. happened? Hard laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I think so many of us, can get so stuck in our head, worried about what people will think. And the voice in my head was so much worse when than anything anyone has ever said to me since I made these choices. And actually, the really interesting thing was nobody overtly, ever overtly criticized me. And I didn't even get a lot of like subversive little digs. What I got was really surprising people coming out of the woodwork and sending me this long email of I had a heart attack at age 30 something and I'm really unhappy and I don't know why I'm living this life and I'm so impressed that you were courageous enough to quit and like letters and emails and notes from classmates who had their own versions of something uh, similar to what I went through and wanted to share that with me so I've gotten much more of that um You know, the hardest part probably was between me and my husband, not probably, definitely, (laughs) because not only did he think he was like marrying a certain kind of person and I really changed, but I did not do a good job of navigating that change with him. I was very much like, I'm doing this and you can come or not, but it's happening and it was not it did not build intimacy and connection shockingly for me to take that strategy. And I've learned since then better ways to approach those conversations with the people closest to you where you can say, "This is really important to me, and I really want to do this, and I love you and i and I want to stay close to you and let's talk about how we can move through this together so that that was probably the, where there was the most tension mm-hmm. That makes sense though, because. You know,
0: it is, it is scary to do it. And one of the shifts I, that I think women make is this shift away from needing permission from other people to like doing something like I call like self-authorization, you know, just giving mm-hmm. yourself permission. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be, get a little bumpy and sometimes you feel like, okay, well, I finally know what I want to do. I'm just going to do it. And I'm not,
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> like when you're trying a new behavior and you swing the pendulum, like other way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is very common when we're starting to assert our needs and we're just like, well, this is my need and I'm going to do it no matter what (laughs) there's not. So yes, that, that. And I think another thing that,
0: you know, again, and you speak to a lot of these things, um, you talk about discovering your superpower. It was almost like, you know, you discover your superpower, but we're also so accustomed to people disempowering us. And so it's almost like you, you probably like, you know, try to strengthen yourself and you were going to just like make it very clear to him because we are, we have this tendency to want to give in. And if somebody doesn't like our plan, we, we just bail on it. And obviously you'd really develop some conviction that this is what you needed to do
1: yeah yeah, but it has been a long time to unwind some of those old beliefs, you know, and I had many years when I first started off where I was like, and I'm gonna make so much money doing this new work that I'll like, you know, it'll change our lives and I'll support you and I'll show other people you can, but it was really coming from this energy of wanting to prove that it was okay that I made these choices. and it wasn't coming from like, wouldn't that be fun and abundant and joyful? It was I really. I did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder for many years of like, I'm going to show all those people from Stanford business school that I can do something alternative and make it work. And so I, you know, there were a lot of like offshoot repercussions and not the most healthy behaviors and beliefs that still continued to happen, you know, but I also just felt so much more aligned and so much more authentic. And I, I had never experienced that, that level of, self-attunement and kind of self-alignment in in my life. So that made it all worth it.
0: Honey, I hear you say that. And I think of um, Tara Brock, who's one of my teachers. She writes in her book, I think it's radical um, acceptance about being in college and having like a roommate or someone that she went away with for the weekend. That person was talking about, I'm really going to like work on like self-love and all this stuff. And it's exactly what you said. like. Self-alignment, self-well, what is that? You know, there's a way that I think you can get so disconnected, you don't even you don't even know what that what that is. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. I didn't, I mean, and that was me in the beginning, which is a lot of what I hope the book can help people navigate for themselves. Because when I wanted to quit my job, you know, people would say things like, Follow your passion. And I would think, Well, I like soccer, but I don't want to be a soccer coach. Like, how do I? how do i translate passions into work that i love what does that even mean and i had one little clue cuz i knew i wanted to do something around helping women empower themselves but then i would volunteer on the boards of nonprofits and i was like well i hate fundraising this seems really inefficient i'm not enjoying this so i had a lot of like false starts and dead ends along the way to you know figuring it out and i think that that's that's common but part of me being the overachiever I am with this book, I wanted to give people a roadmap, you know, where the path is so different for each of us because we're all completely unique beings. And yet I did find there were certain tools and resources that helped me again and again navigate through my own uncertainty, through my own, you know, self-doubt and yeah.
0: Well, it's funny because when I, I asked you before we started recording, I said, is there anything that you know really stands out for in terms of the feedback you've gotten. And my favorite um, part of the book was about everything you write about the energetic breadcrumbs. And that kind of speaks to what you were saying a minute ago about even when you quit your job, you had to sort of try this, try that. I mean, it, you talk about this too. It's like, it's not a str- straight path. You don't go from A to B to C. It's a lot of it is, you know, just experimenting and, Maybe you could say something about these energetic breadcrumbs and and what that was like for you, because, you know, you did, you did take this big risk and how to still continue to find your way. Right.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's what I found because so for me, when I had my big epiphany, I had this moment where I thought, oh my gosh, my whole life I've been following my ego and my mind and my wallet and not my heart or my intuition. And maybe that's why I'm so unfulfilled. then I thought, well, how do I even follow my heart and intuition? What does that even mean? So I made this big commitment to quit my job with nothing planned. And I gave myself the goal of for six months, all I'm going to do is follow my heart and my intuition. I don't even know what that means. I don't even really know how to do that, but I'm going to do that for six months. And if at the end of six months, I haven't with a clear intention of finding work that I love. And if I haven't gotten some clarity after six months, I can always go back to finance, take a safe job, what have you. And at the time, I was reading Gay Hendricks' book, The Big Leap, which I highly recommend. It's a great book. And I was paying attention to what energized me. And when did I have more energy at the end of an activity or a conversation than I had at the beginning? And this all evolved into my concept around energetic breadcrumbs. So what I've noticed over the last decade or so, coaching you know thousands of women and in my own life Is that we get these little energetic breadcrumbs, which are these moments when we feel energized or alive or curious. For me, I describe it, it's almost like some little inner spidey sense, like perks up in my being is sort of how I describe it, where I go like, huh, you know, you kind of lift your head up and you get interested in something and it might be someone's mentioning the name of a book or an online art class or you're walking by an art gallery and you don't know why but you feel this impulse to go inside and then you bump into a friend of yours and you have this deep conversation about art and how you you know you miss it and right so there are these It can turn into a serendipitous moment, but often it starts as a little moment of aliveness or energy. And the reason I call them breadcrumbs is because we tend to dismiss them as trivial or insignificant or weird or random. And that's all the ego's language to try to dismiss this because it feels threatened and safe. So I've come to learn that if I think something is really weird or random, it actually usually means I should really pay attention to it. And it might be incredibly aligned for my soul, but my rational mind is labeling it as weird and insignificant or random to keep me away from it. Um, and so we dismiss them as breadcrumbs, but they're, they are like Hansel and Gretel in the story where they really do lead us back home to ourselves.
0: Yeah. I, I love that one. Um, was there something in particular though that kind of got you to take the final step and leave your job?
1: It's a good question. Well, I was I was researching a lot of like more safer options, more tangential ones and I actually interviewed for this startup incubator at Stanford where they were going to like match a bunch of us to do a startup together and I got to the final round and selected my people and and then I had another moment of I don't even really want to do this. I'm not excited about this. And it was very just, and then I was going to start this baby products business. And I did a whole like slide deck. I was going to raise venture capital to pay myself a salary. And then I realized one day I woke up and thought, I don't really care about baby products. So in the beginning, I think there's a lot of knowing what you don't want before you know what you do want. So that was happening to me, but I had just, I had come to a point where, you know, a year before I had thought about quitting. And finally I said at year end, when I get my bonus, I'm going to quit. And... So there was more like the timing of the bonus and this decision I made to myself, you know, and then like there was no like straw that broke the camel's back or anything like that at work. But what was really scary is between August and December, because I knew I was going to quit at the end of the year, I was exploring all these options and none of them felt right. And that was really hard because I really wanted to have the next thing. I wanted to know. I wanted the certainty. I wanted to go in to quit and be like, "And this is what I'm doing now." And I didn't get that. And I was so committed to the path of finding work that I loved that I just said, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit with nothing planned." And like I said, I, you know, by giving myself that six month window, telling myself like an experiment, I'll just follow my heart and my intuition. That little six month gap, it made it safe enough for my ego to feel like I could jump off this cliff because I decided if I don't find it, I'll always, you know, take a safe job. And then what happened was within a week of quitting my job, all these people came to me for coaching because they wanted to quit their jobs and they wanted to know how I had done it. And I had, I was three quarters of the way through an executive coaching certification just for fun following an energetic breadcrumb, not thinking I would become an executive coach. And I would go to these coffee meetings and lunch dates and just share my story and some of the tools that had helped me. And I would leave them feeling so energized. And that was my first breadcrumb where I thought, huh, maybe I want to be an executive coach. And since then it's evolved into, you know, keynote speaking, writing, team offsite, all kinds of things. Um, But at the time that was sort of And the thing, you you summed it up so beautifully about it being nonlinear, and it doesn't go A, B, C, D, because what I found is if you really want to live a deeply satisfying life, a soul-centric life, it's nonlinear. And it's not rational always, not, not strategic. It's a process of emergence. The next is always emerging and emerging and emerging. And we're not used to that we're not trained for that as a culture we don't have patience for that we don't trust that process so it's a a radically different way of living and yet it is to me like the heart of living your most joyful impactful satisfying life
0: all right I had to sort of stop myself from laughing when you were like, yeah, so I was doing this executive coaching program, but I wasn't going to be an executive coach. I mean, like I wasn't planning on that. It's like, it makes me think of the research on um, girls and women, the psychology of girls and women and how, you know, the early researchers were, were finding out if you talk to girls and women, they know things that they Mm -hmm. don't let themselves know. So it's so funny because on some level you must have thought, you know, so there's, there's the, you know, breadcrumbs, you know um, but then I think there's also our ways of knowing that are buried within us. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, you, on some level you must have been headed because you were preparing yourself for something you didn't seem to be aware
1: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know, what else is interesting is the way that I had sort of internalized the patriarchy's hierarchy of value, because actually one of the reasons why I didn't let myself admit that maybe I wanted to be a coach is I kind of looked down on it as like, I'm a Stanford MBA. I'm a hot shot, big deal in finance. Oh, now I'm going to go become some executive coach and make like way less money. And so there was a way and the same, and I've experienced this so much as a mother and a caregiver. Oh, it breaks my own heart how much I've internalized patriarchy and I devalue my choices to caregive because it's not paid. Our culture doesn't value it. There's no prestige. I mean, I'm not like some crazy person who, ch- who chases accolades, but I, I notice these subtle ways that I devalue some of my choices because other people don't go like, Oh my gosh, that's so cool that you're doing that. Um, so it was, you know, partly because of that too, I think that I, wasn't really owning it.
0: Now, there's so many ways. I think that we are so yeah, influenced by, by our culture and by our society, because one of the things I bump, bump against is that, you know, the, if I'm doing an offering a group program where women can learn to meditate, you know, if it costs a thousand dollars, just use that number up there they balk and think like, oh, that's a lot of money to spend on a program and, or even it's eight weeks so that's two months. But if you put the same person in the situation where they're going to some, you know, fancy fundraiser or family event, they might spend a thousand dollars on shoes, dress, hair, makeup, all these things easily, (laughs) easily. And then say, oh, and then I can never wear that that outfit again cuz it's been on social media. So there's so many ways and and I was thinking about why would they do that? And again, it's because it's we know we have to spend a lot of money to look a certain way, to feel comfortable, mm-hmm. but we don't. There's there's no standard for spending money on yourself for your own well-being and your own, you know, personal growth and your mm-hmm. own, you know, satisfaction and peace of mind.
1: Yeah, I so completely agree and had the same experience. When I first took a very expensive program, I was like, this is almost as much as a car. But that when just on me, it felt so selfish, self-indulgent. But then it it was some of the best money I've ever spent. And in hindsight, it's like, well, why wouldn't we spend more money on ourselves? Like, we are our own greatest resource. If there is something that's going to help me be more successful or just be happier, be more at peace with myself, like, why is that not priceless you know right right and and also just
0: really adjusting and saying like what do I really want to do with all this money there's a sense of like you know always living for the future like I'm gonna save all this money for this for that or whatever maybe we'll get a bigger better house or car or something and I have found like letting that go and just being able to like spend my money to go on a woman's retreat or something like that in the end, it's so much more satisfying for me because that's something maybe I won't do in 10 or 15 yeah. years. So, you know, just coming back and really, you know, it, both of us have this meditation training, just sort of learning how to live in the present.
1: Yes. Yeah, it is. It's such a good practice.
0: So we was looking, cause you do have like this, a variety of, of experiences now. And I didn't know if there's one that you kind of Would want to share a little bit about, but either, you know, the neuro-linguistic programming, I personally am kind of interested in the past lives regression because that that is, that's one area where I think I'm still so influenced by, you know, sort of traditional academia and everything. And it's just, you know, or, or I know like I have friends who get like tarot card readings and things like that. And so, Uh, you you know, you named the book the soul solution so you're kind of you're into that that spiritual component very much you could tell us a little bit about your your experience with um with those trainings
1: happy to yeah i joke that i'm like a stanford mba spiritual teacher so i have a foot in both worlds so i can go corporate or i can go real woo woo if you want um I mean, I'll just share a story from my own life. So I, so I highly recommend the book, Many Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss. He's a clinically trained, I think, psychologist um, or psychiatrist, I think psychologist. And he was at Yale. He teaches at Mount Sinai. So that book really opened my eyes because he was someone who came from a very academic background. And then he had this patient who came in and she had these phobias, like she was scared of the dark and scared of drowning. And he was working with her for over a year. And eventually he said, well, let me hypnotize you and take you to childhood in case there's a trauma that you suppress, that's repressed, that's causing your, your phobias. So he hypnotized her, went back to childhood, no traumatic memory. And then while she's under hypnosis, he gave her the instruction. "Well, go back to an earlier time, whatever time, when these phobias first appeared thinking, cause she was like, I don't know, two years old now in the hypnosis session, the memory regression. She, so he thought maybe something happened pre-verbal or whatever. She goes back not to infancy, but to a past life. I think in Egypt, where she was buried alive and drowned in the dark. And he's going, What is happening? And the, he's a therapist, just not understanding, surprised, not believing in past lives or reincarnation, brings her out of the hypnosis. Her symptoms are completely gone, gone. Her phobias are gone. They never come back. And he says, Okay, well, as a clinician, I don't believe in past lives or reincarnation, but as a clinician, I can't ignore the fact that my patient's symptoms just went away in a single session. So let me learn more about this. And so that's what the book is about. It's so good. Um, But I'll just share my own story. I mean, I have lots of examples because I read his book uh, right around in August when I knew I was going to quit my job at the end of the year. And something in it just lit something up in me where I was like, this is so fascinating. I, I didn't even know I cared about reincarnation. I've never spent much time thinking about it. And I was at this time where I was like looking for signs from the universe because I was going to quit my job. So I finished his book. I turned it over, Googled his name. The first thing that came up was that he was coming to San Francisco a month later, which is where I live. So I went and saw him, had a very profound experience. And then the next summer I trained with him and got certified in past life hypnosis regression. So then me and a group of therapists would meet every week, no, once a month um, on Union Street in San Francisco and take turns hypnotizing each other and taking each other to past lives. So I've been to a lot of my own past lives, like more than most people. But I will say something really profound that happened for me is after my daughter was born, she's 10 years old now, I had a, I had a really hard time postpartum. Um, not like the sleep deprivation, the hormone imbalance, the identity change, All of it. And I would have these moments where I would be pushing her stroller, like at the top of a steep hill in San Francisco. And I would just see a flash across my mind of letting go of the, the handles of the stroller and watching it go down the hill. And this sounds like typical postpartum, you know, issue behavior, whatever. So I I ended up getting help, but separately from that, I, at one point, many months later, no, it was actually around that time, but I, a month or two later, I, um, I went to a past life under hypnosis where I saw, it was very much like Downton Abbey. So I was, I saw this like gorgeous castle and I was in a maid's uniform. So I was part of the staff and I could tell, like, I was not, you know, the of the people, whatever I was a worker, worker bee. And I was in love with the son of the family and he was in love with me, but we couldn't get married because we were different classes. And then I just saw under hypnosis, this image of his wedding it was outside on the lawn. It was beautiful. And he's like saying his vows to the other woman. And I'm standing there with like a tray of champagne flutes because I'm working the wedding. And he's saying the vows to her, but he's looking at me. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then in this vision, it keeps going as the person's instructing me, like, what do you see now? And now what's happening? I saw that him and his new wife had a baby. And because I loved him, I inserted myself to be like the wet nurse or the, you know, the caregiver for the child. And I saw myself giving that baby a bath and I loved it because it represented him, but I hated it because it represented her and it wasn't mine. And I saw myself wanting to hurt that baby and I didn't in that life. And she grew up and came back to visit me when I was an old lady. And so the whole thing played out. I came out of that hypnosis session and the urge to let go of the stroller for my daughter was gone. Wow, (laughs) that's like an entire movie. example, I went for it.
0: So that's amazing. Do you feel
1: like um, anybody can be hypnotized? Well, there's a small percentage of the population that can't, uh, but most people can, and you're always in control. So if you were to say, I'm not going to let you hypnotize me, you could stop it with your, your mind and your, you know, the person is always the the client is always in control. And um, yeah, so they, they have choice about that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what do you think is um powerful of being able to do that? Other than you know, if you're experiencing a symptom or a phobia or something, and you and so, so what you're sort of saying is actually what happens in therapy. You know, as a I'm a psychologist, so in therapy, people often come in and they're having panic attacks. They don't know why, and mm-hmm. I'll just start exploring with them and, you know, I'll start by asking them about their recent past, but then sometimes we'll get into like their childhood and we just start to wonder like where this comes from. And just in the conversation, people start to remember and realize things. And then once something starts to make sense, the power Mm -hmm. of the behavior or the fear Mm -hmm. or the emotion Gets released. It's sort of like I think you know. Freud was called it the talking cure. Like it's actually you can you can do that. So what do you what do you think it would be the power you? you think if everybody could go back to their past lives, they'd learn something about the,
1: would we get little past life breadcrumbs or something? Yeah. Well, it's fun. Cause sometimes yeah, you might go where there was something traumatic or something in a past life that's affecting you now. And the cool thing about it as a, a therapy or a healing modality is you don't need to believe in past lives or reincarnation for it to work. You could believe that I just made that whole thing up about the Downton Abbey thing, but that something in my psyche, maybe I'm tapping into the collective unconscious or a part of my own subconscious, or there's 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 a lot of theories about what's actually happening. Um, But what I love about it is that people's symptoms, yeah, can shift on a dime. So that's really cool. But separately from that, in the types of training, I have a couple of different trainings in it. and one of them, you also invite the person after that life ends. They kind of go up in the sky to some council with light beat and they can ask, You know, what was the purpose of that life and what were some of the lessons I learned? And you can get really interesting soul-based wisdom when people are in that deeply relaxed state, they access a piece of themselves or whatever you want to call it. Source, essence, consciousness that comes through with some really clear and really profound guidance for people I've found. And yeah, sometimes it's just revisiting something. It sort of reminds your soul Oh that was then and this is now so i don't i can let that go similar maybe to finding the original source of a a panic attack there's something in the psyche that calms down once you see that other movie to completion it's like well i know how that movie ends okay i don't need to keep cycling that one
0: right right and i i mean i interviewed um uh the author of seven and a half lessons about the brain and you know she made it very clear that our emotions are constructed Um, based on our previous experiences and stimuli from the current environment, but that, you know, it's in the service of our brain trying to protect us and keep us safe. So if there's been a bad experience, it makes sense that you would continue to be, you know, vigilant and looking for that experience and try and actually trying to avoid and stay away from that experience. And often we carry some previous experience that that threat is no longer even possible. Right.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. But we're like every day, we're still gearing up for it as if it's a real possibility. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's really wild. The, um, the amount of sort of alternative research that's going on right now, all of that. And um, even my daughter is going to be working on a study at the University of Colorado on they're they're starting up all these new studies on psychedelics now too mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and and all of that so it's just opening up this possibility that that in a way there there is some other aspect of life other than the life we experience through thinking and through <laughs> through language
1: yeah right? Yeah. definitely it is sort of like getting out of the matrix sometimes yes <laughs> and yeah, there are think- any modalities and you know past life healing is definitely not for everyone i just think of it as like lots of doors that go to this beautiful room and so find the door that interests you or that works for you right i think that's so cool um and i think going going back to
0: to your book which really takes a lot of these ideas like you know the concept of do we ha- having a superpower and all of that and you're sort of talking now too about finding a way to tap into the, one of your, one of the tools you have is like the whispers of your soul. Yeah. right. And then, you know, and I think it's kind of interesting because when you said you first left your job, part of the, part of your worry was um, just not having a plan, you know, not knowing what to do. And so that like embarking upon, how do you just tap into again? Well, how do you, access the whispers of your soul. And I think it requires some level of just exploring, right?
1: Yeah. Exploring. And I I joke in the book, but treating yourself like a giant research experiment where it's sort of like, okay, let me try this and then notice how it feels and observe myself and try this and notice how it feels and observe myself. So it is, it's sort of like your own big experiment on yourself to see, you know, what interests you, what lights you up and and exploring it. I mean, it's so tricky because sometimes when you're at these pivotal periods of transition, you really want the answer. And then the more we cling to that, the more we kind of constrict around wanting the certainty. And there's an element of surrender and allowing and trusting that's required in this type of process that's really scary and hard. And you know, I talk about in the book as being in the hallway. There's that expression when one door closes another one opens but then this one breast cancer survivor she put it so well she said when one door closes another one opens but the hallways are a bitch you know excuse the language for people they get offended right. right um but it's it's scary to be in these periods these moments of transition where we don't you know we've left the solid identity of who we thought we were but we're not yet fully landed in the new of who we are now and those liminal periods are are very challenging
0: yeah, yeah. That that's so interesting because actually I think that that's a component of any woman that does have a child too goes through that oh that gosh. life transition like I'm not who I used to be. But I don't really feel like I'm not an experienced parent. And it's just that, you know, that's another part that can really add to a, um, it's just a, tough, can be a really tough transition, even when you're really happy and everything's going well. It can still yes. just be, you know, sort of just, you have to
1: find yourself
0: again instead yeah, of Yeah, you know?
1: the identity loss. I mean, it's major becoming a parent, identity transition. And I love Alexandra Sachs's work about matrescence, where she turned it into a term like adolescence. Um or matrescence. I always feel like I say that one, wrong. <laughs> but she has a whole book on it and it's the concept is it's similar to adolescence where you're having all these hormone changes, identity changes. It's a massive period of upheaval and transition and our culture had a, hasn't really had a term for it until she came along. So she has a TED talk now and a book and that helped me you know, understand the difficulty I went through in such a better, a more useful way rather than like self-loathing and shame <laughs> thinking there's something wrong with me.
0: Right, right, right. And I think, um, you know, in order to sort of find a way to, because one of the one of the things you talk about is quieting your inner critic. And I think in order to acquire the inner critic, we have to actually listen and, you know, be, start to get comfortable with the inner critic, which is kind of like akin to being in that hallway, you know, when one door shuts and another door hasn't opened yet, you know, can we, can we learn to be, comfortable being uncomfortable
1: yes that's so true and that's a muscle and I think some of us think oh if I'm uncomfortable it must mean it's bad or it's wrong but actually sometimes it means it's right in the sense of as you sit in that place that's how you get all the jewels and the gem and what's true and what's next and but yeah I mean when people I've coached women and watched them learn to identify their inner critic dialogue for the first time and then they're like this is a roommate who won't be quiet. What do I do? It's nonstop, you know, and right. it's right. it's a lot to right. to, be to be with that.
0: I know. I, I when I'm teaching, um, in particular, women to meditate, I like to tell them about the study they did at the University of Virginia, where you know they brought in participants for a research study, but they were actually um, leaving them alone, waiting for the research to begin, and that was what they were observing: is how uncomfortable they were sitting alone with nothing. They they'd you know taken their cell phones and there was no material, there's nothing to do. And they even took it to the point where people were saying they were so uncomfortable being alone with their thoughts and nothing to distract them. They thought, how uncomfortable would they be? And then they started to show them the participants this little gadget that would that would zap them with this like give them a little electric shock. And people were shown it and got to try it and they're like, oh, I wouldn't touch that thing. And then they put that then in the area where the people were waiting and the very people that said they wouldn't touch that thing, start to like play with it and shock themselves as, as a form of distraction. Cause we're just that uncomfortable. And so I try to weave that lesson in very early on um, mm-hmm. because it's so much of, so much of life. So, you know, if people can learn to, um, you know, read a book like yours and just start to like, you know, Practice a few of these things and just incorporate them, you know, with compassion into their life. It can just make a huge, huge difference.
1: Yeah, I agree. And there's for me sometimes it's little tweaks or it's just noticing my own red flags. You know, like sometimes on the weekend I've noticed I'll invent an errand to not like sit still with myself or to to feel busy or to feel productive. And it's then I'll think, wait, do I really need to go return this stuff at Target on a sun? No, I'm just doing that. distract myself but also to feel like i'm checking something off in a random list what if i choose to be really present with my kids for 20 minutes instead or go meditate or whatever the thing is you know um so just kind of catching yourself in all the ways that you run away from yourself (laughs) lately i've been just when i want to go sometimes for me it's like go eat sugar or um distract myself in some way i'll think okay and I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I don't know if you know the Enneagram. This is yes. typical for me. It's like, what's the pain that I'm avoiding right now? What's the discomfort? What's the feeling I don't want to feel right now? Can I just sit down and take some breaths with it? And often lately, I will just start crying and I, I won't even know why sometimes, but it's just there's been feelings that I've been running away from and they just need some space and they need to be welcomed. And then it's actually never as big a deal as how terrifying it feels before you feel them. You know,
0: Right. Right. That's that whole, that's that whole lesson about, you know, the, the monsters we're running away from. If we can just stand still, turn around and look at them, you know, they're, they're really more frightening in our mind than they actually are. In person. Uh, that's funny. I'm an Enneagram too. So maybe okay. I can help you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm married to a seven. So I know that.
1: Okay. So you know like to that... have
0: fun. I like to have a <laughs> yeah. good time. Constantly. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Um well I I, I want to let you go because you've given us a lot of your time, but before before I do. Um, Is there anything you're kind of working on now? Do you have thoughts
1: about other books you might write someday or any ongoing Mm -hmm. projects or? Yeah, it's interesting. I never thought this, but well, the the goddess Isis, who I didn't even know who she was, came to me in a dream and then then helped me write this book. And now I've been getting into um, like Tantra and sacred sex magic, which is not something I ever thought I would be interested in or part of but I've been doing that and channeling with these councils of light beings and a lot around off planet consciousness and star seed nature and things that are really, really, I would say pretty far out there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where it's been going is things like, how do you use the energy of orgasm to clear shame from your body, you know, which, and how do you, how can women heal their relationship with pleasure and with their sexuality and do that and connect that in with spirituality. So that's, but I'm right now I'm in the phase where I'm kind of just doing it for myself. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm just still learning and exploring. I'm not, I'm not teaching that at all on any level. Well, well let's not forget you were, you were preparing to become a coach before
0: you knew you were going to be doing that. So my, guess, true. my guess is my guess yeah. is you're under something. Well,
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I did start one womb healing circle, but I didn't even charge money for it because I just, I'm so new to all of this. But what was fascinating for me is I went, oh my gosh, for over a decade, my work has been all about helping women reclaim their, their power and empower themselves. And I never, never thought to think about the womb, like didn't even cross my mind for a decade. What, like that's kind of insane right there because it's our power center in so many ways and so I've been just having a lot of healing myself and exploration around that and what it means and how do we connect with it and so I don't know I don't know where it's all going yet because I'm in the emergent process I'm in the hallway but
0: well it never ends because I'm definitely quite a few years older than you and I'm still there. My my big thing now is I'm just so into quantum physics. I'm just so into quantum physics and just that the whole idea that there's the universe of matter and then there's this whole other universe of energy and how we're so accustomed to living by the laws of matter which were a huge and helpful discovery but there are other laws that quantum physics has identified that just show you that random things you can yeah. really tap into the potential for random things to bring about possibilities that seem very unlikely and so that's oh, my love- that's my tangent that I'm off on oh i
1: love that you're on that t- well it's so interesting you say that because I'm in a divinity circle with my spiritual teacher and many other women. And we've been exploring, like going to other dimensions in consciousness up to the 12th dimension. And then we've been going into multiple like timelines and dimensions and it's been wild. And, uh, I've been channeling with these councils of white beings now for a couple of years. And which sounds, <laughs> yes,
0: it sounds like well, it's, you definitely live in California because I don't think they, they, those councils are in the Boston. I'm in Boston. I don't think I can find them. <laughs>
1: but they gave me this one meditation where I, I recorded it you can find it on insight timer on it's on my website too on the book resource page but anyway you go down a stairwell staircase into a library full of books and you pull a book off the shelf and it's your life to date and you review each page of your life to date like quickly get to today And then you see how all the pages are blank to the right and then you put that book down and you actually go and choose another book that's going to be your life from this point forward and you just notice how the cover's different and how it feels and looks different and then you can infuse those pages with all kinds of things of what you want but anyway what this council of light beings told me is that that visualization is actually going to from a quantum physics standpoint that it would help people jump to a new timeline Oh, I love that. It sounds so ludicrous, but I mean, why not? If there are, because quantum physics has now shown there are multiple timelines that exist simultaneously. So then, why why couldn't we up level or jump to a new one? You know, through through something like that. So that's kind of where my craziness and your interests overlap a little bit. Well, and the thing is, I think the more you actually
0: learn and you experience personally that there's something very empowering about opening your mind up to things that are very easy to judge yes (laughs) especially if you if you know you know you know I went to I went to uh, got a master's at Harvard and then I got a doctorate degree so it's very easy to but that is so limiting because Mm -hmm. you know then if if I only believe in something that's been 100% 100% proven by scientists and academia. Well, what about all the other people that are doing things that just haven't spent the time and energy or haven't had the resources to prove it all? I don't know. I think it's just fascinating. And I I, I like to think that the more educated I get, the more open-minded I get, and the more willing I am to consider things that, that frankly, I five years ago I would say we're just crazy you know
1: yeah if you told me five years ago I'd be talking about white I'd be like what are you what are you talking about you know but this is how things can unfold so and I think that's what's exciting too about being
0: a pretty grounded person with with some you know some formal education to be able to to yeah to be able to say to people like Hey, look at if I can break free from the limits of what I, the way I thought I should think and be, then you know you can, you can too. So it's been, um, it's been really great talking with you. And I'm gonna Good. try that meditation. Absolutely. I'm oh so,
1: yeah.
0: I'm curious now about which book I'm gonna pick and and all of that. And yeah, you, let me know how you like it. And maybe we can stay in touch. And when you come up with the next thing, because I'm sure there's something else coming. <laughs>
1: maybe we could do this again. I would love that. I would really love that. Oh, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. So great to meet you. And yeah, thank you for having me.